The statue Edmonia Lewis carved shocked visitors to the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. The five-foot-three-inch life-size sculpture inspired a great deal of controversy in the middle of 1876. Press at the exhibition would write that Lewis's work was the most remarkable piece of sculpture in the American section, but a fellow artist would question whether a statue of the ghastly characteristics of this one does not overstep the boundaries of legitimate art. Edmonia Lewis, one of, if not the first, black and indigenous professional sculptors in the United States, was used to criticism, especially as it flowed from the pens of white critics. And so it's not surprising that the death of Cleopatra, her greatest work, was met with mixed reviews. It is, however, quite strange that this provocative statue, this 3,000-pound testament to the life and work of one of the most important sculptors in American history, disappeared from the face of the earth for almost 120 years. This is 1,000 Words, written and produced by Michael DeWatley, a podcast dedicated to examining the world that art has made. When Edmonia Lewis was born, her parents at first named her Wildfire. Her mother was partially Chippewa and her father was Haitian, but they would both die before Lewis's 10th birthday, and she would be supported by her older brother, who had been among those first to make a fortune in the California Gold Rush of 1849. She wanted to become an artist, and there were only a handful of schools in the country that would admit a woman, much less someone who was of black and indigenous descent, and much, much less someone who was both. But after Oberlin College admitted her, she began to learn more about how to express the innermost parts of herself with color, shape, and line. Maybe it was during this time that the figure of Cleopatra, a daring, fierce, and complex African queen of Greek descent, began to settle into her mind. A rumor began at Oberlin that Lewis had poisoned two other coeds. A white mob kidnapped her, beat her, and left her to die in the winter of 1862, almost two years into the Civil War. No evidence was ever found to suggest Lewis poisoned anyone, and the charges were dropped. Then she was accused of stealing paint, brushes, and a picture frame. Once again, the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence, but the college was not willing to allow her to complete her education and receive her degree, so she left for Boston. There, she was patronized by abolitionists who heard her story and helped her set up an art studio and learn how to sculpt. Soon after arriving in Boston, she started selling clay and plaster medallions of some of her patrons and other abolitionist heroes. These medallions became so popular that by the age of 20, she had achieved commercial success and became one of the first, if not the first, independently wealthy black and indigenous sculptors in U.S. history. She used her savings to travel to London, Paris, and Florence before settling in Rome, where she could study neoclassical sculpture where the classics had been made 
and so that she could live in a place where she was considered an artist before she was discriminated against as a woman of color. She became incredibly popular in Rome and had wealthy patrons in America as well, and it was at this time that she began working on the death of Cleopatra. The sculpture would take more than four years of her life to complete, and it became her constant passion. When she ran low on money to complete it, she would travel back to the United States to sell smaller pieces until she had the resources she needed to continue the work. The 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia was the first real World's Fair in the United States, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence with a six-month smorgasbord of innovation and creativity. It was a huge deal for Lewis to be invited to submit her work, one of the high watermarks of her career. Over 10 million people would visit the exhibition, which would include the participation of 37 countries and over 14,000 businesses, vendors, inventors, and artists. She wanted to submit her best work. That meant the death of Cleopatra. So, in 1876, she had the 3,000-pound statue shipped from Rome to Philadelphia. The curating committee still had to approve it, and there was no guarantee they would even accept the statue after she sent it. Once they did, the statue was placed in Gallery K of Memorial Hall, which at the time was the largest art hall in the country. The death of Cleopatra had the odds stacked against it, as it would be difficult for any piece of art to stand out against all of what the exhibition had to offer such as the world's first looks at inventions like Alexander Graham Bell's telephone, the Remington number one typewriter, Heinz ketchup, and the right arm and torch of the Statue of Liberty. The death of Cleopatra drew thousands of visitors to Gallery K, even so, and Lewis placed a note near the work marking it as for sale. No one bought it. After the exhibition, Memorial Hall was rechristened the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They did not include the death of Cleopatra in their collection. The statue moved into storage for a year before turning up at the 1878 Chicago Interstate Exhibition, and here's where things get fuzzy. At some point after 1878, it's unclear Though it feels safe to say that Edmonia Lewis sold Cleopatra to a person and at a time and place that would have been for her devastatingly small. The statue became the centerpiece of a Chicago saloon on Clark Street. At some point thereafter, a gambler named Blind John Condon acquired the statue and placed it as a grave marker for his favorite horse, which also happened to be named Cleopatra. Time passed. The horse's grave was near a racetrack, which became a Navy munitions and housing site during World War II. Children played tag with the statue serving as home base. In 1971, the site the statue was on became a bulk mail center, and the statue was moved from its gravesite location to a storage yard of the Edmire Construction Company, half buried among heavy machinery and dirt. The marble was graffitied on Cleopatra's breast, which well-intentioned Boy Scouts tried to improve by painting over it. 
The Forest Park Historical Society heard about the statue in 1987 and adopted Cleopatra. They moved her to a shopping mall next to the Bulk Mail Center. In 1994, almost 120 years since it was originally created, art historian Marilyn Richardson, a black woman, rescued the statue from where it sat in a storeroom in the shopping mall, surrounded by last year's Christmas decorations and rusting paint cans, and had it donated to the Smithsonian. And now, the death of Cleopatra sits at the top of the stairs leading to the third floor of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. You should go visit it if you get a chance once the museum opens again, because the death of Cleopatra is unlike any other piece of Cleopatra art you'll see. She sits on her throne in command of her destiny and her narrative, peaceful, smiling, and dead, with the asp that poisoned her secure in her right hand. Edmonia Lewis based her features on coins printed during her reign, which makes the visage much closer to reality than the whitewashed interpretations of the artists who came before and after her. Cleopatra isn't suffering. She's authoritative. And it's worth wondering for a moment how the statue came to be lost, why at some point it wasn't treasured, valued, or honored after its riveting debut at the Centennial Exhibition in 1876. Ten years after the Civil War, America may not have been ready to celebrate and honor a black and indigenous artist who sculpted a beautiful and noble African queen whose rule managed to make the Roman Empire feel insecure and who killed herself rather than be marched through the streets as a slave. And what a loss for a century's worth of people to not know that such a thing as the death of Cleopatra existed, and to be unaware of the work of Edmonia Lewis. A century's worth of students who looked like her, who may not have known that sculptors looked like them too. Because what we lose when we lose works of art is the full expression of who we are. And that is a very big thing to be lost, just to mark the grave of a horse. This has been 1000 Words. If you like what you heard, please do me a favor and like, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Believe me, it does a tremendous amount of good for the show. This podcast comes to you from the weird and wonderful city of Austin, Texas. Music from this podcast came from purpleplanet.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>